Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. Hey, Jono. How are you? I'm good. Welcome to episode 112. 112. 112. Yes, halfway, halfway there. We're halfway? Once we get to the end of this episode, we are uh, uh, halfway through a 24-episode season. Well, that would make sense if this is episode 12. Hang on while I do the math. Yes, you're right. I have confirmed, ladies and gentlemen, that he is absolutely correct. We are halfway if this is episode 12. Yes. So a little feedback on uh, episode 111. Uh Uh-oh. Nothing bad. Nothing bad. Just a couple people pointed out online that the uh, gray elephant in Denmark trick doesn't work internationally all the time. For example, our friend Mark Heron in Switzerland said, if you told uh, that trick over there, you're going to get Deutschland before you get to Denmark, probably if the person's German. Someone pointed out they're going to get Dominican Republic uh, if you're somewhere else. So it's not a, you know, it's a bit of a risk to do that trick, but for the most part- You got to adjust. You got to adjust. Exactly. And even if you're off by one, it just proves how uh, psychic you really are. Well, if you're a proponent of the two perfect theory, you, you want to be wrong from time to time. Exactly. And I am. Look at me. Could you I are... be a bigger proponent of the two perfect theory? Look at me. Well, I was going to say, could you be more wrong more often? But I think you put it in a nicer way <laughs> I really than I did. Do. Yeah. Anyway, uh, also catching up from our last episode, as we noted, Mark Heron at around 4,500 miles is the furthest away. We're still waiting to see if anyone can top that. But we may have found the person besides me who's closest uh, to the Grass Lake Studios. And that's our friend Jeff Stickles, oh. who's a, a, a lovely video editor and uh, occasional magician, has learned a number of tricks that he he uses on uh, the unsuspecting around him. Anyway, he's uh, probably about four miles away. So if anyone thinks they can beat Jeff Stickles uh, at 4.1 miles from Grass Lake Studios, go to elimarksmysteries.com, hit the contact button, and let us know if you think you are are closer than 4.1 miles or further than 4,500 miles. As I said, we are halfway through season one. It's been a pretty amazing first half when I look back on the list of the people we had, starting with Rob Zabrecki and the amazing Kreskin, uh, David Regal, Morgan and West, Suzanne, Sandy Marshall. And of course, DeCavett. Yeah. Uh, and and can we possibly keep it up? Well, I think we can. In, in the second half of season one, we have some Amazing guests lined up. John Carney, Chris Hendricks. Mike Caveney, Derek Hughes, Tina Leonard. Steve Spill, uh, Nick DeFott, uh, our good friend Jay Johnson, and of course, David K, a.k.a. Silly Billy. So if you haven't subscribed, do so now so you don't miss any of those. And we're also in the early planning stages of season two. One which of is us. a mere one of us is yeah you you're in the dark where you normally are about these things i like it in the dark yeah that'll be the the audiobook we're listening to in season two is the bullet catch where we're working uh steve cohen's going to come back and talk about the bullet catch uh we have some other fun surprises there so anyway on to today's episode this is part two of a three-part arc that we're doing talking to people who share one of eli's distinctions growing up in a magic store we chatted with Julie Ang about her experiences growing up in her dad, Tony Ang's magic shop. And now, who are we chatting with in this episode? In this episode, we have two people left to talk to in this arc. We'll do, we'll do Liberty Larson next week, who's just a delight. She's a fourth generation magician. Uh, and she grew up not in a magic store, but in the magic castle. 
which is even cooler. However, this episode, sandwiched in between those two folks, uh, is Jeff Altman. Jeff uh, Altman. Jeff yep. Altman. Now, you may say, you may think to yourself, I don't know Jeff Altman. Well, in fact, you do. And as soon as you see his picture and hear his voice, you're going to go, oh, I've seen him for the last whatever. He's been around forever. He yeah, has. I will say, can I just say, uh, I have enjoyed absolutely every single interview we've done, but I have perhaps not laughed harder than the interview with Jeff Altman. Yeah, he was really fun. Uh, and the reason he's with us today is because his dad, Art Altman, was a well-known and well-regarded card man in the magic community. Although he's not a household name to the average person, those who are steeped in the world of magic definitely know him as a, kind of a legendary person within the industry. Yeah, absolutely. Good friend of uh, a guy named Harry Houdini. Perhaps you've heard of him. Yes. And also uh, Ed Marlowe. Yeah. So Two there you go. Good magicians in their own right. So Jeff was nice enough to talk to us. Uh, he came to Los Angeles in the early 1970s. He'll tell us all about that. His plan was to become a comedy magician. I uh, ended up focusing more on the comedy side of the equation, and he had a really long a career as a stand-up and an actor and a commercial spokesperson. But he's not an impressionist. I want to make that clear. Yeah, he told us right from the beginning, I'm not an impressionist. And then he does. Back off on that. Yeah, he does about a dozen great impressions. <laughs> Perhaps anyway. a definitive impression, too. Uh, of Di Vernon. Yes. That's the definitive. Yeah. Uh, like you said, it was one of the most fun interviews we've had so far. All Certainly of the funniest. Fun, but he made me spit up a couple of times uh, yep. with the things he was doing. It was the first time I think in this podcast that I thought, rats, I wish this was a video podcast of some sort so they could see him doing what he's doing. He was doing card tricks for us. He was doing faces and impressions. It was a delight. Well, as, as people listen to the interview, they'll note that he does a couple card tricks uh, while talking to us. The second one uh, I did grab on video. And if you look in the show notes, there's a link to it in YouTube showing You're him so doing good. that trick. So, so good. However, the very first thing we asked Jeff focused on the theme of these three episodes. What was life like growing up in magic? So you grew up. Uh, in a household with not only a magician, your dad, Art Altman, was a magician. He's not a professional magician, but he is legendary within the magic community as being a really exceptional card man. So what was your first introduction to magic as a kid? Well, uh, I guess uh, knowing that my father was going to cocktail parties with my mother and at every cocktail party, someone would say, of course, I wasn't at every cocktail party <laughs> as, as a seven-year-old. But I remember everybody when the, the, the parties were at our house, everybody saying, Art, please pull out a deck of cards, do something for us. And then my father would perform. So every time people would come to the house or they would go somewhere, people would always ask my father to do some magic. As a little kid, he would tell me stories using a deck of cards. For instance, he would say, well, let's say uh, he would say, look, here's this guy whose name is Jack. And if we take Jack and push him into the center of the pack, like this, and give him a little shuffle, Jack would like to come back to the top of the deck, but he hasn't yet. And so you just give it a little riffle and then he comes up miraculously. Very nice, very, very nice. He would tell me stories. He would take the four kings, put them in different parts of the pack. They would all come back to the top. They would all come to the bottom. They would go around, they'd wind up in his pocket. It was, it, was, it was fun being a, a nine-year-old kid and watching your dad do this. And then when I got into high school, he actually started teaching me a few things, a few very simple things with cards. 
Do, do you remember the first trick you ever mastered where you felt like, yeah, I got this one nailed? I don't know if it was if I the very first trick. I, I can't. It was what one of two tricks, but I, I I think I would narrow it down to those two. Which two were they? Well, in, in one trick, I, I have someone take a card, shuffle up the cards, show them three cards, put them down on the table, have them touch a card. Whatever card they touch becomes their card. And the three cards I put on the table, of course, are not their card. Right. They so they select one of the cards and presto. Next thing you know, they're they're dancing. <laughs> okay. And the other trick I learned was was a famous trick that uses a move called the Biddle move, and it's a move in magic where you show five cards, one of which may or may not be their card, and the next thing you know, uh, you're, you've got f- five cards in your hand, and suddenly there's four cards. You count them down to the table; their card is not there. And you come over to a pack, which you tell them you haven't touched yet, spread them face face down, and the only face-up card is theirs. Wow. That would be that would be maybe the second trick I learned. So yeah, two two really good go-to tricks. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Still to this day. Both lead to dancing. Uh, dancing, smiles, and and uh marijuana. <laughs> Man, I gotta. I got to learn some card tricks, I guess. This is, you uh, betcha. This is fantastic. Um, you talked about now getting into high school. Did you have a magic act as a, as a teen? No, I didn't have a magic act. I could you know, be called upon to come up in front of the class and do a trick or two. And a few people knew that I did a couple of card tricks, but it wasn't until I got to college that I really started getting into ma- card, card, high quality card magic. Was there a reason for that? Why it suddenly kicked in? Well, I met a fellow down there named Frank Thompson, who was a very, very famous card man. He, he got me really, really interested in stuff. And I started learning from him. And then when I would come home at, at uh, uh, Christmas time or Easter vacation, uh, my father would implement that with, with more stuff that he would show me. And as time went on, he would show me more. Frank Thompson would show me more. There was another fellow in, in uh a Baltimore named Cy Keller and Howie Schwartzman, who were very, very, very good card men. They showed me stuff and I got started to get around and I started to get a little bit of a reputation as a card man. And then in 1974, I graduated from college and drove from Syracuse, New York, where I grew up, out to the Magic Castle in Los Angeles, California. What was your plan? It was simple. It, it, it was dancing and marijuana. No, no. You could have done that in Syracuse. Uh, you didn't not, go to California, did you? Not, not like in California. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. No, but it, it was it was to entertain people, and the and the way that I thought that I was going to do that was by being a funny close up sleight of hand person, so that I would work at the Magic Castle on a regular basis, and then uh, you know, but I I never dreamed of, about really doing stand up comedy when I first went out there. Had you been to the castle before? Did you, or did you just know about it? No, I had visited the Magic Castle twice when I was in high, uh, college. Uh, and I went out to visit junior year and senior year. And both times, I think I performed there. And wow. one time I was too young to even get in the castle. There, there was a very famous magician named Mike Skinner. Sure. Yeah. And Mike Skinner and I were very close friends. And he said, uh, Jeff, I'd like you to do one of my shows on Sunday night. 
So uh, uh, sure enough, I uh, I did half of Mike Skinner's show. He entered, went halfway through his show and said, we have a special guest for you tonight. He's the son of a, uh, one of the great card men in this country. Please welcome Jeff Altman. And I came out and I did this routine in which I cut to the four aces doing four different impressions. And this was 1974. And I, I, I would cut the aces uh, as uh, first Nixon, then Hubert Humphrey, then William F. Buckley Jr., then Lyndon Johnson. I'd kill to see that right now. I would dance and smoke marijuana if you would do that for me. And, and the first days, of course, I did as Richard Nixon. Let <laughs> me make this perfectly clear. I'm so horny I could eat the taillights off a dump truck. Then I would do uh, Hubert Humphrey. Well, I'd, I'd certainly like to say that I'm proud to be here today. I'd like to cut an ace out of the deck. And here comes one ace right, right like this. Yeah, there it is. And I'm certainly proud to be here today, and I'm great to be vice president, and I'd be happier to be president, but that f***ing Lyndon Johnson just pissed me off. <laughs> then I uh, immediately go into uh, William F. Buckley uh, Jr. Uh, you've been called a Neolithic moderate, a pragmatic moralist, and a semi-lucid perpetrator of left-wing mediocrity. Uh, and here's another ace. <laughs> and then I would do, then I would do, do my Lyndon Johnson, you know, my name is Lyndon Johnson, and sure enough, if I cut the cards right, another ace. Wow. So I haven't done that now in 40 years. Well, so, it still holds up. Well, it's 40 years old, so thank you very much. It really is great. Now, I, oh, so I have, some, I have some questions now. I have some questions because Certainly. when we started this, and started to talk about the things you do. And we mentioned impressions. You said, hey, I'm not really an impressionist. Please don't say I'm an impressionist. You just banged out four impressions as if it was nothing. So right. can't you at some level say, all right, yes, okay, I'm an impressionist. I'll say this. I'm a comedian who can do some impressions. Wow. And so now today, of course, we see a lot of magicians who are funny, while they're doing magic sort of yeah sort of right i mean it's not an easy thing to accomplish and and back in 74 i got to imagine that you were pretty much on the on the cutting edge there in terms of kind of melding those things together the way you just did i was never aside from the routine that i just did for you where nixon and they all those guys cut cards that was the only funny piece of business i had the rest was serious oh okay so I had not developed uh, the act I had hoped to come to do uh, at the Magic Castle, which was a funny card guy. But in June of 1974, I got up one night into the comedy store and did some of David Fry's act and a little bit of my own that I had done in fraternity, uh, the fraternity house in college. I entertained for 15 minutes and Mitzi Shore said, well, you can come back, Altman. That wasn't bad. Come on back and, and, and come on in on Saturday night. And so I start, started coming back to the comedy store and I, I was there for, you know, 25 years. Now, can, can you remember, because I, uh, I was an odd child and uh, had David Fry's albums. Oh. Do you remember what parts, what stuff you did of his on the, at the comedy store? No, I, I have I no idea what I, what I did. But I, eventually I developed my own routine. I had Nixon... Uh, you know, dancing with the temptations. 
Well, I, I just want you to know I was one of the few kids who who not only knew what Nelson Rockefeller sounded like, but you would criticize if it wasn't done right. Uh, I'm should... happy. Happy's happy. Uh, this is Governor Nelson Rockefeller. <laughs> exactly. But I want to be perfectly clear: you're not an impressionist. <laughs> I'm doing stuff I haven't done in forty years. I'm telling you the truth. I believe you. I believe you. Did you have, look, can I talk about magic for a second? Did you have mentors at the Magic Castle? Because you must have been there sort of at the glory days of the place. Yes, I, that's true. My mentors uh, back then were some of the greatest magicians that ever lived. Di Vernon was alive and became a very close friend. Uh, David Roth, the greatest coin man probably to ever live came out. And uh, so I had them. I had the, the basis of knowledge that I brought from Baltimore, Maryland, where I went to college and uh, my father. And so those were my main mentors. And uh, uh, also Ricky Jay, who was a very close friend. And uh, we, we would spend lots of time together doing, you know, card tricks and stuff. So all those people influenced me a great deal. Ricky was very influential in getting me up on stage the first time to do card magic. He, uh, How I so? Well, I remember he and his girlfriend, uh, uh, Tracy Newman, Lorraine Newman's sister, uh, got me down at Canner's, a famous deli in Los Angeles one night, and said, listen, you're going to go up tonight and you're going to do Mike's, one of Mike's shows. I might have done the whole night for Mike. I don't remember. This was, this was senior year of college. And uh, I went up on stage with Ricky Jay's you know, emphasizing uh, what I should do and what I shouldn't do and being lots of uh, help and really giving me the firepower to get up there and do it. So I owe a lot to Ricky Jay. I owe a lot to Di Vernon. I owe something to Ed Marlowe in Chicago. But above all those people would be, of course, be my father. Sure. Do you remember anything specifically that that Di Vernon taught you? Because I know he could be a, from what everyone else has said about him. And we've been lucky enough to talk to a number of people who were influenced by him. Was there any particular thing he said that you still carry today in your head as as a good tenant for magic? Well, I, I, at 80 or 81 years old, I, I, I he was sitting at the bar drinking as he normally did. So I, I went over and I asked him, I said, Professor, what are you going to be doing 10 years from now? And he said, Jesus, I, I'll tell you, I, I'm, I, I'll still be f***ing around. And not that, an that impressionist. Actually, You're not yeah. an impressionist. <laughs> <laughs> no, I will say this. I can do Di Vernon better than anyone in the world. Let's hear Do a little more, because that was great. Jesus, I'm, I, I'm telling you, this is absolutely fantastic. I've never seen anyone handle coins the way David Roth does. It's, it's absolutely better than Downs, better than Huger, better than anyone. David Roth is the best coin man in the country. I'm not kidding. I'm being absolutely serious. I'm sorry I'm drunk. <laughs> what? What? What's the big lesson you took away from Ricky Jay when it came to performing magic? Well, Ricky, Ricky was truly funny and uh, truly erudite at the same time. That's a very hard proposition to execute. And he did it. And just watching Ricky Jay's shows, uh, 52 Assistants, for instance, Ricky Jay and his 52 Assistants, uh, is inspiring. You, you don't see much magic, to, from my point of view, that's inspiring that you say to yourself, geez, I'd like to be like that. Ricky was one of those people. I mean, he was not only funny, but he was educational. 
He was uh, hugely articulate. He, he was so articulate. Some, I'll tell you a funny story about Ricky, and this is not to put Ricky down in any way. But uh, he, he went on the Letterman show and was sitting talking with David Letterman like I'm talking to you right now, John. It, at some point, he started doing what was known as a trick called McDonald's Aces, where four queens changed to four aces. And it, to, to do it, he used the patter that was originally, I think, an uh, expert at the card table, which is a, one of the great treatises on card magic. And he goes into this, well, the four knaves came out and dealt themselves down. And the queens, one at a time, began to assemble on the table. And, and I asked Letterman about it afterwards. And Letterman said, it was great. We were talking. And then all of a sudden, we were at the Renaissance Fair. <laughs> I, uh... Of course, when you're talking about funny, just pure funny, there's no one funnier than Letterman, Boy, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah, he uh, he's a genius, and I uh, I miss him. I watch all of his uh, current stuff, but I miss him uh, as a voice of reason on the air right now, boy. And I, yes. I watched your I watched you doing a magic trick on Letterman, and my first thought was, oh my god, of all the people I would never want to do anything for, it would That's maybe right. be him. I mean, as great as I think he is, it, that had to be, I, I mean, I just, I watched and I was like, oh, please, just let the man do the magic trick. Don't mess with him. Just let him alone. And then you killed him. Interesting. You said, I, was it the trick where I was letting cards tell me what, what, what card he was taking? Yes. And then and, I wound up holding the signed card? Yes. Yes, yeah. <clears throat> That's a great trick. We had so much fun doing it. I thought that was my best appearance on Letterman ever. We, it was all ad lib. It was nothing written about that. And it was all ad And when he said, oh, I think you're, I think you're forcing a space on me. That's right. And He's said, forcing a space on me. Yeah. And, and, then I, and then I dribbled the cards and he said, stop. And, and he said, no, not there. I, I didn't have free choice. And I had, I had, I had to dribble the cards again. It was great. It was great. So, now, do you not having ever been on the Letterman show nor know him as a human being? Did you say, I mean, was there a pre-interview where you said, okay, Dave, here's what's going to happen and I'm going to do this and you're going to do that? Or was it simply at some point you will do a card trick? I don't want to know anymore. Yes. Wow. The latter. Did you guys meet working at the comedy store? Yes, we met back in 1975 and have wow. been close friends ever since. Well, it was a delight, a delight. But at the same time, I was absolutely like this going, please just leave him alone so he can don't don't screw around with the guy. He's doing his no, best for you. In, in, in doing that, the repartee back and forth. was. I mean, at one point I told him he, he's, he's got to do what I'm telling him or I'm going to cuff him. Yeah, I heard you say that. I'm going to cuff you. You know, I mean, I, I don't want to brag, but there's not many people that can get away with that on his show. Yeah, right. Exactly. But, but be, because of our friends, the basis of our friendship allowed me to do that. Yeah, if anyone looks at the, like when he had uh, Magician's Week at some point, and every night was a different magician, he is hard on those guys. Yeah, he really Well, let me say this. His attitude towards magic changed consider considerably from the time that he used to have the guy that was the bargain magician, the, what was his name? Uh, uh, the guy that would come on the show and just do tricks and everybody would laugh at him. Kmar. Kmar, the, the budget magician. Right. Okay, from that time, early on, on Late Night with David Letterman until his show on CBS, 
he, he started to get serious about magic himself. In fact, I even taught him a little trick with a coin. So Dave, Dave was eager to have those great magicians on his show. He, he may have given them some, some David Letterman normal flack, right. but, but he, was, he was interested in magic by that point. Johnny, of course, a huge influence on Dave. Johnny's a magician. There's a uh, kind of a, I don't know, is it true that when you first met Johnny, you were doing, let's say, an impression of him? The first time I ever met Johnny, I, I, I don't remember the first time I ever met him, but because uh, I met him on a couple of occasions. But uh, the night that you're referring to, uh, I was on stage doing an impression of Johnny Carson. Uh, Doc is not here tonight. Ed is not here. Uh, <laughs> This is uh, this is so crazy. Who's here tonight? And I hear this voice off stage go, ah, geez, I don't think you're doing that just right. <laughs> and it was Johnny. Wow. And, and he came up on stage and did, I said, do, do five minutes, Johnny, do some time. So he did, he did some time. And when he got off the stage, huge applause, I got back up on stage and said, you know, folks, I, I bet you didn't know how strong an opening act I carried. <laughs> fantastic it was really it was the greatest night of my life and then uh, excuse me the second greatest night on that the greatest night of my life was at the 1991 affiliates convention at radio city music hall and i'm backstage with johnny carson and i had somebody go get me a deck of cards and i did some kind of move with the cards i i did i did something like you know like that or something something awful so that he could see it and, and he said uh tell you what why don't you come on back here and let me show you what I do. And we went behind the curtains in the state and had like a 10 minute card session together. And then almost immediately following that, he walked out on stage and announced his retirement. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So we can blame, was, we can blame you for that. There's a cause and effect. He's doing cards with maybe. Jeff Altman and then he retires. Uh, yeah. He saw my work and said, I've had enough. You know, it's amazing. I've heard a lot of people's uh, accounts of that moment with Carson on stage when he retired. It's uh, lots of people have talked about the, the surprise of that, but you're the only person who really was kind of just chatting with him uh, on a different topic backstage right before it happened. That's a pretty well, cool I was standing next. I was standing next to him. I kind of sidled up next to the guy and he, he, he said, uh, uh, geez, Jeff, are those the only shoes you could find? Because I was wearing sneakers. <laughs> And I, and, and, and I had had a guy run and get me a deck of cards. And I came back with the cards, as I said, and I did this awful, stupid move openly so that he could see I wasn't very good, which wasn't necessarily the case. But I wanted to get him interested in. So, so at, at that point, he said, why don't you let me come on back in and let me show you what I do. And he came back and did, did all this stuff he was doing. He was doing beautiful card fans. And uh, but he did some great stuff. And I'm telling you, I was just, I, I was pinching myself going, am I really standing here backstage with Johnny Carson doing card tricks? What a dream. So uh, let me just ask this just as a kind of a sidebar, because sure. I think all, anybody who's interested in magic or comedy uh, or television knew that Johnny Carson started as a magician, maintained that love of magic throughout his life uh and when he retired was uh, essentially doing magic at his house was he a pretty good magician yes yes johnny could do i mean he had an act as a kid and uh he certainly could have re-performed that act had he wanted to he i think he did cards to pocket one night on his show 
uh, where, uh, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten cards go from his hand into his pocket, uh, you know, invisibly. Johnny was Johnny was OK. He could get away with uh, a lot of stuff. Yeah. And uh, he, he, he got together with guys from the castle. I know some guys that went to his house and gave him some lessons and stuff. And uh, he was uh, he, he was just a, he was a talented guy. And Johnny, I wish I had gotten to know Johnny better than I did, because Johnny and I had the same, very same interests in life. He played tennis. I played tennis. He played the drums. I played the drums. He did card magic. I did card magic. He did comedy. I tried to do the best I could. And so I, I, I regret that I didn't get to know him better because I think we would have been close friends. I think you're probably right. Speaking of magical encounters, somewhere in the back of my brain, I remember hearing you say somewhere that you did card tricks for Muhammad Ali. Am I remembering that right? That's correct. How did that come to happen? I'll show you something, my friends. See these cards? Yeah. Yeah. I can't fan them because they're too old, but I'll show them to you. This deck was used by Muhammad Ali to do tricks for me. Oh, you're kidding me. So he did them for you. Okay. He did them for me, and then I did a few from him, and then I think he forgot it. And then years later, I was in New York doing the uh, Letterman show, and somebody came down to me and said, you know, Muhammad Ali's in room 262. So I went up with a deck of cards in my hand, knocked on the door, made a fan of cards, and I said, hey, champ, it's me. It's Jeff Altman. And my friend and I were invited in. He said, come on in. Come on in. I'm the greatest of all time, of all times. And we went in, and he was sitting on a bed with his feet spread, taking up the entire king-size bed, doing magic tricks where he would take a, 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 a cloth or a silk, put it in his hand, and disappear. And he was doing this trick over and over and over for a guy named Jim who was sitting in front of him. Well, the guy named Jim was Jim Brown, the world's greatest football player of all of all times. Holy mackerel, Andy. It was just unbelievable. I mean, it was, it was, we were like, it had gone into another dimension, it seemed like. And we stood in this room with Muhammad Ali, Jim Brown, and a few other people until it started to become kind of strange, and then we left. But it <laughs> That that may be, have been one of the greatest times of my life. Wow, you're like a you're like a, a the zealot of magic, yeah. just showing up throughout that's history, right. doing card tricks. Okay, up here, here I am here with Muhammad Ali. Here I am with Johnny Carson. Here I am. You you started out as doing magic at the Magic Castle, and now you you've gone full circle. That's and true. even though you're not doing stand up now, I understand you are doing magic gigs how's it feel yeah. to go full circle like that and be back at magic well it's, it's it, it is very different i mean uh it, it, you know it's different standing up on stage at you know caesar's palace opening for cool and the gang or whoever i opened for and and and, and coming up to somebody at, at a uh, at a cocktail party and going uh, excuse me uh could you just name any card in the deck <laughs> Your years of being on stage must make you a more confident walk-around magician than the average guy, because you you know how to talk to people and 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 hold the attention. Yeah, I mean, there's certain things that I can do. Uh, I, I I mean, uh, I was in New York recently. My doc daughter had some surgery, and I was talking to uh, some people, and I did some card tricks for them, and uh, uh, you know, it, it was entertaining. They had fun. I had fun. I, I wouldn't compare myself to 
being able to entertain for, you know, 18 minutes, like, like John Carney, for instance, you know, that's just, uh, that's grade A plus stuff. Uh, but I, 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 I can walk around at a corporate event, which I've done twice since I've been here in Raleigh and, and entertain. What's your, what's your favorite go-to trick right now in, in that set? Well, it would be something like, I don't know, can you see the cards? We can, yes. So I'll turn the cards face up. Name a card you like there. Jack of clubs. The jack of clubs. Yes. The, ja- the jack of clubs. Now that's a hard card, I'll tell you, because I'm going to use the top card, which is my lucky card. Uh, I think it's the six of clubs, if I'm right. Uh, no, it's the two of hearts. But you named the what? The jack of clubs. Watch the two of hearts. Can you see it? Yep. Watch the two of hearts become the jack of clubs. Wow. That's awesome. It's hard doing it in this in this venue, but for, for, for a person who's who you're doing it for at a cocktail party or a corporate event, it's a pretty spectacular little piece of business. It was they pretty name spectacular over Zoom. Center. I turn over the top card and suddenly it changes visibly into the card they named. Is there anything you're using now uh, in doing that sort of work that reminds me you of something your dad told you when you were first starting out and when he was first teaching you stuff? Yeah, one of his favorite tricks is one of the tricks I mentioned to you up front, uh, where, where I have a card selected, put down some cards, have them touch one card, and that becomes the, the card that was selected at first. That was a favorite of my father's. And I, he may have been one of the first people to do that. I don't know. But my father was, uh, you know, 45 years old when I was born. So he goes, he was born in 1906. So in 1926, when he was 20 years old, he was made the first president of the Society of American Magicians by Harry Houdini. Wow. So my father knew Houdini. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. But you, you've got a, you did a, created a trick that's in Tarbell, didn't you? Yes. What, yes, what is that trick? Uh, it involves uh, having a person uh, take a card. They cut the deck in half. They deal down into three piles. They could have cut anywhere they wanted. And uh, I, I, I turn over the top card and say, look, here's, a, here's the 10 of spades. Now, if I tap here, here, and here, I get uh, the 10 of diamonds, the 10 of clubs, and the 10 of hearts. But what was the name of your card? And they say the king of spades. I say, well, look, that's in my hands here. And if you turn all these packets over, there's a king on all, all, all on the bottom of each pile. It's a pretty pretty good trick. Yeah. If, if you're in Tarbell, uh, I, uh, this I did not know, John. So uh, I was in, Jim, very- I was, Jim, I was in Tarbell 7, which was an addendum to the series written by Harry Lorraine. <laughs> that's right there. That's yeah. No, I love Harry Lorraine. I don't know what you may have heard about Harry Lorraine. You could take all the card entertainers together and let them do their best five minutes, and Harry Lorraine had come out and make them all look like jerks. I'm, I'm serious. Yeah. He and I are old friends. You are so charming and so much fun to chat with, Jeff. I'm, but we, I, uh, is there somebody in magic today that that you kind of look forward to seeing? If you hear, oh, this guy's doing, I, I'd go see that in a minute. Are there oh, all, ki- all kinds of people? Like, who do you like? Well, uh, there's a fellow named Derek Delgadio who has a show in New York. And he's, he's tremendous with cards. I love to watch him work. There's all kinds of guys all around the country who I just love to sit and watch do magic. There's a fellow here in Raleigh named Steve Beam. Uh, he's written lots of books on magic, uh, an expert specifically in one specific field uh, of magic, and uh, card magic, and very, very good at all phases of card magic. Well, thank you so much. I'm sorry we didn't have a chance for you to do any impressions because I know Gosh, you don't really do that impressions. Great. That would have been the final. It's, 
Yeah. Jesus, I'm, I'm, gonna, I, no, I, I, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm absolutely serious. You, you, you can't, you cannot do these tricks unless if I'm drunk. And I'm sorry, I'm drunk. <laughs> Thank you for, for sharing Di Vernon and Bill, Bill Buckley and uh, Nelson Rockefeller and Mr. Nixon and all those, all those folks. But you are terrific. What a joy. What an absolute delight to spend some time with you. Thank you so I, very, I feel, much. I feel the same way about both of you. It's really been fun. We'll let you know when this thing posts. And if, you know, maybe next year, if you're not busy, maybe you'd come back and chat some more. I'd love to do it. All I right. enjoyed this thoroughly. Thank you so much, Jeff. Great talking to you. God's blessings on you. Take care. Goodbye. Take care. Well, I don't know that I've laughed harder at anybody that we've had a chance to chat with. Yeah. I mean, just the delight from top to bottom. Yeah. So yep. much fun. Yeah. Did hey, you like it? Still, I'm oh, still here, guys. Oh. <laughs> Oh, I'm glad we didn't say anything. <laughs> yeah, I was expecting you guys to say, Jesus Christ, we had this guy, and what are we going to do? We'll just have to edit the tape. <laughs> How do I get turn this thing off? I, I don't know why I don't see the, the uh, I normally get the off button, guys. There, there should be like a, like on my screen, as I look to the bottom right-hand corner of my screen, it says leave. Oh. <laughs> I think he's gone. I think we, we lost him. Gone. We don't know for sure. Well, there's no way to know. He could be. What a delight, from top to bottom. Uh, you should include that little. Well, yes, I did include that little after talk because so great, uh, absolutely it, so great. Uh, I'm not sure he isn't still there. He might be listening <laughs> to us right now. He he might be part of this. He was so much fun to talk with, and what a nice guy. We haven't run into anybody who I wouldn't absolutely give the shirt off my back to because they've been so kind to us. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Anyway, as I mentioned before the interview, we did uh, record that last card trick that Jeff did, the one that he does for Walk Around Now. The link for that are in the show notes, or go to our YouTube channel. I bet you didn't even know we had a YouTube channel, did you, Jim? We have a what? Yes, we have a YouTube channel where all these episodes sit along with some other fun stuff uh, that you can check out on the YouTube channel. Well, is it so a any- video on the YouTube channel? Is all well, it's, yeah, it's a video insofar as there's something on screen. It's just the title of the episode. Oh. But apparently a lot of people, a lot of people listen to podcasts on YouTube. So Really? We're up there with some other fun stuff that you can check out. Wait, I'm going to back up. A lot of people listen to podcasts on YouTube? Yep. A lot of people also listen to audiobooks on YouTube. Son uh, of a gun. I yeah. Um, now, of course, some of those podcasts on YouTube are video podcasts. Uh, our uh, friend Nick DeFott does one with Mac King where you can see people. But I, I imagine just as many are just the just the audio. I appreciate the. this is uh, an education for me as well. So if well, you're listening and you think to yourself, wow. Uh, know that I share your wow. <laughs> this whole podcast is really you just discovering things. It really is. It really totally it, is. It really has a lot to do with our friendship when it comes right down to it. It's, well, I think it's it's mutual. It's mutual. Anyway, the other reason this podcast exists is for people to listen to uh, an entire audiobook from the Eli Mark series. We are now uh, about to have you read chapter 11 from The Ambitious Card. But before we do that, I'll just sort of recap what happened in chapter 10. You may remember uh, Eli drove Nova home after Gray's memorial. Uh, he did the Gray Elephant in Denmark trick. Which apparently doesn't work internationally. Doesn't work all, everywhere. Back, everybody doesn't work everywhere else, which I never considered when writing it, but there's a lot of things I never considered. So there you go. Anyway, as the chapter ended, Eli was waking up in the house where Novo was house sitting uh, and he was awakened by the persistent vibrating of his cell phone. 
The Ambitious Card and Eli Marks Mystery. Chapter 11. I looked down at the screen on my vibrating phone. It was Deirdre, although at some point in the past, I had set the caller ID so that it read, Ex-wife, probably pissed. I looked around the room. Nova's bed was empty and the sun was clearly up. I considered my options for a long moment and then pressed the answer icon. Good morning. Where the hell are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Eli, I don't have time to play around, she said, the level of agitation in her voice at a peak I hadn't experienced recently. I've been calling you since 6.30 this morning. The police are looking for you at your apartment, and your uncle has no idea where you are, and Fred is about to issue an APB listing you as a fugitive from justice. If I had been groggy 20 seconds ago, I was now fully awake. Why? What? What's going on? What's going on is that Dr. Maurice Bitterman is dead. That's what's going on. For a split second, I considered correcting her pronunciation of his first name and wisely thought better of it. Dead? How dead? What do you mean, how dead? Completely dead. Now it was my turn to be agitated. I meant, how did he die? We can talk about all that when you get down here. Your options are to come in on your own or Fred will send uniformed officers to bring you in. She paused, her tone warming just a bit. Personally, I would recommend the former. I'll be right there, I said, and she broke the connection. I sat in the chair for a few more seconds. The house was completely still and quiet, with the exception of an odd hum coming from the floor below. I stood up, feeling a bit rubbery in my legs, and headed toward the door and down the stairs. The odd hum turned out to be Nova, who was seated in what looked to be a very uncomfortable yoga position in the center of the living room floor. Her eyes were closed, and her mouth was open in the shape of an O. All of her hair had been pulled into a tousled bun atop her head. She was wearing more clothes than the last time I had seen her, but not by much. She stopped humming when she heard me come down the stairs, but didn't open her eyes. Hey, sleepyhead, you're finally up. Want to go out to breakfast? Or I could make something. I'm a vegan, but I make a mean poached egg. There was an odd domesticity in her tone that I found surprisingly inviting. Um, no thanks. Some other time. I've got to head out. That's cool, she said, her eyes still closed. Maybe next time. Thanks again for the ride. And everything. No problem, I said, turning to the front door and flipping the deadbolt. Do you want to get up and lock this after I go? She tilted her head quizzically to one side, but still didn't open her eyes. Why? No reason, I said. No reason at all. The room was once again filled with humming by the time I closed the door behind me. As I approached my car, I was surprised to see that absolutely none of the snow that had been so feverishly predicted by the weatherman had materialized. Franny had been right yet again. Fifteen minutes later, I found myself seated in the sunny, glass-walled conference room in Deirdre's workplace. Deirdre and Homicide Detective Fred Hutton were in a deep, hushed conversation just outside the room. He stood a head taller than her, and yet his current posture somehow gave the impression that she was standing over him, whacking him with a ruler. They reached some sort of impasse, and Deirdre marched into the conference room, 
setting a small stack of file folders on her side of the large, deeply polished table that took up the lion's share of the room. I feel like I'm spending way too much time trying to keep you out of jail lately, she grumbled as she flipped open the folders, took out her reading glasses, and quickly scanned the first document. Do you feel that I should be in jail? I asked cautiously. No, I don't, she said flatly, which is why I'm working so hard to keep you out. So, Dr. Bitterman is dead, and somehow you, or more to the point, homicide detective Fred Hutton, thinks I'm involved? In a word, yes. And what has led him to that conclusion? We'll get to that in a minute. I'd rather keep you two apart for as long as I reasonably can. She continued to page through her documents, almost as if I weren't in the room. Did the transcript of my interrogation come back? I finally asked. Yes, Eli, it did, she answered without looking up. And he read it? Yes, he did. The part at the end where I sang the song? The entire thing. Anybody else read it? She sighed deeply and looked up at me, peering over the top of her reading glasses. Eli, everybody read it. In fact, the MP3 of you singing nearly crashed the server it got emailed around so much. Oh, I sat silently while she finished the report. She set the papers down, sat back, and took off her glasses. She glanced over the glass wall behind me and gave her head an almost imperceptible nod. A moment later, homicide detective Fred Hutton entered, followed by his partner, Miles Wright, carrying a manila folder. They both sat on Deirdre's side of the table looking at me coolly. Homicide detective Fred Hutton looked particularly icy. I want to open by saying that this is all preliminary, she said. Eli, as I'm sure I've said to you many times in the past, the office of the district attorney works closely with the Minneapolis Police Department on major crimes. We have the responsibility and authority to direct the police on investigative issues and we make recommendations on charging decisions because, after all, we will be responsible for prosecuting those charges. You are here today because you are directly linked to the deaths of Walter Grabowski, a.k.a. Gray, and now to the death of Dr. Maurice Bitterman. How am I linked? Can you define directly? I'll get to that in a moment, she said. Here's what we know so far. At around 4.30 this morning, Dr. Bitterman was found dead by his personal trainer, who apparently was in the habit of arriving at that hour for Dr. Bitterman's exercise regime. He found the doctor unconscious in his bed. Paramedics were dispatched and pronounced him dead at the scene. The medical examiner's initial ruling is death by poisoning. But as I said, this is all preliminary. Poisoning, I repeated. Yes, we believe so. But what about everyone else at the reception? There were at least a hundred people there, all eating. Even I... I stopped in mid-sentence, realizing that I had, in fact, not eaten anything at the reception. I decided to hold on to that tidbit for the time being. There have been no other reports of illness or death resulting from food or drink ingested at that reception. I will say, though, that since there was no official guest list, we're having no small amount of trouble locating all of the other attendees. I looked from her to homicide detective Fred Hutton, who was burning holes through me with his stare. But if there was a mass poisoning of a hundred people, you would have heard something by now, I offered. We agree, and in fact, we believe that Dr. Bitterman wasn't poisoned via the food, but was in fact poisoned while he slept. She let that sink in. 
What do you know about sleep apnea? Not a lot. I know that Bitterman suffered from it. Homicide detective Fred Hutton raised one eyebrow at this statement and sat up a little straighter in his chair. Deirdre made a point of not looking at him. And how did you come by that information? She asked. He told me yesterday at the reception. She considered this, then put on her glasses and skimmed the notes. Dr. Bitterman regularly used a device called a CPAP machine, which stands for Continuous Positive Airway Pressure. The device was in operation last night. As I understand it, the patient straps a mask to his face covering his nose and mouth. This mask is connected by a small hose to the machine, which administers a continuous, predetermined level of air pressure into the patient's mouth and nose while he sleeps. This air pressure, in theory, prevents the patient's airways from constricting while asleep, which is the primary cause of sleep apnea. She looked up at me again, peering over the top of her glasses. It's also effective at controlling snoring, in case you're interested. Unless you've outgrown that. She returned to her notes. One of the features of the CPAP machine that Dr. Bitterman owned is a small, removable water storage reservoir which holds about a cup of water. When the machine is operational, a heating element under the reservoir warms the water, which moisturizes the air blown at the patient's face. Like a miniature humidifier, I offered. I regretted making this comment as soon as it came out of my mouth. Homicide Detective Fred Hutton had continued to stare at me but now glanced down and made a brief note on his pad. I decided it would be best if I didn't offer any further comments on the operation of the CPAP machine or sleep apnea in general. Yes, like a miniature humidifier, she repeated. We believe at some point a capsule containing poison, we suspect cyanide, was introduced into the reservoir. When the machine was turned on, the poison was released into Dr. Bitterman via his respiratory system. Death would have occurred very soon after he fell asleep. Cyanide, I said. Where would someone get cyanide? It's not as difficult as you might think. It's commonly used to clean precious metals and also frequently used to kill rodents and other pests. She looked up at me to see if I had any comments to offer. Recognizing I had none, she continued. We suspect, she said, that Bitterman used the machine every night, which means that the poison capsule would likely have been introduced into the water reservoir at some point yesterday, perhaps during the reception. She took off her reading glasses, closed the folder, and leaned back in her chair. The three of them looked at me for what seemed like a long time. I got the impression that it was my turn to talk. So, let me see if I understand, I said, choosing my words with care. You think someone at the reception snuck up to Bitterman's bedroom and slipped a poison capsule into his CPAP machine. They looked at me without expression. Deirdre gave me the slightest of nods. Given that there were at least a hundred people at that party, and that I had never even met Bitterman before yesterday, I continued, I'm not entirely certain why you feel I am linked directly or otherwise to this crime. You make a good point, Deirdre said, and with only those facts, you wouldn't be. However, as part of the investigation, the police bagged the CPAP machine and were preparing to send it down to the lab for fingerprint analysis and other tests. When they picked it up, guess what they found attached to the bottom of the machine? I shrugged. 
I literally had no idea. Deirdre turned to homicide detective Fred Hutton, who turned to Miles. Very slowly and deliberately, Miles opened the manila folder on the table in front of him and picked up a clear plastic evidence envelope. He held it up. Despite the indecipherable writing on the front of the packet, I could see the contents quite clearly. It was a playing card. The King of Diamonds. This playing card directly connects this homicide to the murder of Gray, Deirdre said dryly, a crime to which you are, to some degree or another, still inexorably linked. She paused for a long moment. Do you care to posit any idea on how the card got there? She finally asked. I shook my head. All right, Deirdre said, starting to wrap things up. There's a certain degree of disagreement between the district attorney's office and the homicide division as to the next best step to take with you. Our position is that there's not enough evidence to hold you or to charge you with a crime. Currently, homicide detective Fred Hutton added, speaking the only word he said thus far. Yes, currently, Deirdre agreed. When that changes, we will certainly be in touch. So I'm free to go, I asked. Eli, you've always been free to go, she answered. Try to keep it that way. I gave the trio one last look. They stared back at me like three-quarters of Mount Rushmore, but without the sense of madcap fun the monument provides. I stood up and headed toward the door. And then I had a thought. I'm sure this has occurred to all of you, I said as I reached the door and turned back to face them. But don't you find it interesting that the psychic who made his living with his second sight, was murdered by being stabbed through the eyes. And now the psychic, who's a hypnotherapist, has been murdered in his sleep? That's sort of an odd coincidence, isn't it? Judging by the way they stared back at me, it became immediately clear that this idea had, in fact, not yet occurred to them. Someday, perhaps when I'm very old, I'll learn to keep my big mouth shut. The interview, which five seconds earlier had been officially concluded, instantly resumed. They didn't have many more questions, but for some reason, they felt the need to ask the same ones over and over again. Nearly 90 minutes later, I left Deirdre's office and was halfway through the building's exit door when I heard a muffled voice calling my name. I looked over and saw Clive Albans on the other side of the revolving door on his way into the building. He gave me a wave and a big smile. I waved back, continued pushing the door, and stepped out of the building. Clive revolved with the door and a moment later joined me on the front steps. Are they done with you? He asked breathlessly. For now, I said. How did you know they were talking to me? The walls have ears, he said, waving his hands in what I guessed was supposed to be a spooky manner. Two murders, both psychics, very bizarre, don't you think? Sure, I said, trying not to stare at his outfit, which today consisted of a pale blue leisure suit from the late 70s. He wore shiny black boots that made him even taller than usual. This has taken my writing project in an entirely different direction, he continued. Fake psychics is one thing, but fake dead psychics can put one on the bestseller lists. So you're no longer just writing a newspaper article? I think this is a book now. It feels like a book. This will be big. He cocked his head toward the building. I've got to run. I've come here to see what I can find out from the local constabulary. But promise me this, Eli. What? 
If it turns out that you're the killer, be a dear and give me an exclusive. He was so off the charts that I couldn't help but smile. Clive, you can count on it. That's a good fellow. And with that, he stepped back into the revolving door and disappeared into the building. I parked my car in my spot behind Chicago Magic and entered via the back door. As I closed the door behind me, I could hear Uncle Harry out front with a customer in the midst of a familiar diatribe. Yes, I could hear him saying in an exasperated tone. I'll happily sell you this illusion, but not until you demonstrate mastery, at the very least proficiency, in the most recent item you bought, which I believe was just two days ago, if I'm not mistaken. I quickly stepped into the store to find Harry behind the counter and Pete in front of it at a retail impasse. Hi, guys. What's going on? I asked nonchalantly. Harry, upon hearing my voice, immediately abandoned his discussion with Pete and headed over to me. Buster, where have you been? The police were here. They wouldn't tell me why. Not a big deal, I said reassuringly. Just my ex-wife's new husband with his undies in a bunch. Harry was instantly relieved. Oh, thank God. This morning when I saw that you hadn't come back from that memorial service, I started to fear the worst. That I was the next victim? No. That you had a chance to get laid and you blew it. Harry might not believe in psychics, but he was oddly clairvoyant at times. I decided to change the subject. Hey, have you had lunch yet? He shook his head, his mind now completely off his conversation with Pete. No, not yet. I gently took him by the shoulder and steered him toward the stairs. Once you go up and get lunch started and I'll finish up down here and then come join you? That's fine, he said, starting up the stairs, grasping onto the handrail for support. Then he turned and stated emphatically, But I better not hear the ring of the cash register while I'm up there. He very pointedly did not look at Pete as he returned to his climb. When it comes to not making sales, Uncle Harry, I'm your man, I called after him. He responded to this with a grunt and a harumph, and then disappeared from sight. I turned back to Pete. Sorry about that. Harry can be something of a hard-ass when it comes to learning magic. So I discovered, Pete said. All I asked for was a Rubik's Cube illusion that I saw this morning on YouTube and thought was kind of cool. I put my hand up, signaling that he should lower his voice. Oh, Lord, you didn't use the word YouTube, did you? No, he answered, matching my whispered tone. Good. I gently steered Pete down to the other end of the counter. You have to understand that in Harry's day, hell, even when I was a kid, you'd never show anyone an illusion, particularly another magician, until you had completely mastered it. I made the mistake of showing him a clip of something on YouTube, a guy in Japan who's got this amazing act. When the clip was done, he started clicking around, seeing all those videos uploaded by goofs who get a trick in the mail one day, and then next day are broadcasting it on the internet. He was apoplectic. I thought he was going to have a stroke. I don't know how you deal with him, Pete confided. He scares the hell out of me. It's like he can see into my head and knows what I'm thinking. I smiled. Well, if it's any consolation, you're not alone in that. He once made Uri Geller break out knives. So let me see if I understand this. I have to be 100% perfect with one trick before he'll sell me another one? I shrugged. It's not a hard and fast rule. He does it on a case-by-case basis. If you're a kid looking to change a nickel into a quarter, he'll give you a pass. But he'll probably also sell you a book on magic. 
but once you begin playing with the higher-end stuff, new rules start to apply. Eli, I'm a realtor, just looking for something I can impress my clients with, something to make me memorable. Isn't selling their house enough? He shrugged and leaned on the counter. Depends on the market. Anything that gives me an edge, I have to pursue it. Plus, it's fun. I did that cut and restore rope thing to a client a week ago, and two days later, his brother called to give me his business. Was it the magic trick? Who knows, but I bet it didn't hurt. And now you want the magic Rubik's Cube. Yeah, the little one. You know, so I can carry it around in my pocket. I glanced upstairs, where I could hear Harry banging around in the kitchen. Assured that he wasn't on his way back down, I slid open the back panel on one of the display cases and pulled out the cube, a neat little gimmick that goes from a normal-looking Rubik's Cube to a completely solved one in the blink of an eye. Again, making sure that we weren't about to be interrupted, I handed it to Pete, who took it happily. Cool! While he examined it with one hand, he reached into his coat and pulled out his wallet with the other. How much do I owe you? I held up my hand quickly to quiet him. Sorry, he whispered. How much do I owe you? I shook my head. Let's not push our luck. Pay me some other time. I headed toward the front door, hoping that he would follow me. He did, but not nearly at the speed I would have preferred. He kept eyeing different items on the walls and the shelves and in the display cases. I stood by the front door waiting for him. My phone beeped, and I pulled it out of my pocket. You know what's weird? he said as he finally made it to the front door. What? I asked as I looked at the text message that had come in. It was from Megan. It said, simply, lunch, to, day, may, be, now, M. I read it twice and didn't hear Pete's next comment. I looked up at him, tilting the phone so that he couldn't see the screen. I'm sorry, what did you say? I said. I said, it's weird that I feel so guilty. All I heard was the word guilty. I was instantly afraid he had somehow read that look on my face. Excuse me? When I do a trick for someone, he continued, and I fool them, I start to feel guilty, like I'm lying or something. I quickly transformed my sigh of relief into a feigned sigh of compassion. That's the bane of the magician's existence, I agreed as I opened the shop door. In order to master our craft, we have to master lying. But it's in pursuit of a higher cause. As Harry always taught me, don't sweat it, just pull the rug out from under them. Pete considered this for a moment. I suppose you're right, he said. He stepped into the doorway. I've got an open house to get to. This will give me some time to work on this. He patted the pocket where he put his new Rubik's Cube trick. And I promise I won't show it to anyone until I've mastered it. Or until tomorrow, whichever comes first. We laughed as he headed toward his car. I locked the door and turned the open sign around. I reread Megan's text and quickly sent a reply, choosing my words carefully. Then I went upstairs to break the news to Harry that I wouldn't be joining him for lunch. I'm so upset about Dr. Bitterman, Megan said, after we had placed our order and the waitress had disappeared. We were in a back corner of Pepito's, the very fine Mexican restaurant two doors down from Chicago Magic. It was the end of the lunch rush, and the crowd was beginning to thin out. He was still so young, so vibrant. Do you know if they have any idea what the cause of death was? They're considering a number of different scenarios, I said tactfully. There was an awkward pause, 
one of those moments when you realize how little you know about the other person and aren't sure where to head conversationally. We were saved, temporarily, by the quick return of the waitress who delivered Megan's glass of red wine. She set it on the table and, being an excellent waitress, disappeared without a word. Are you sure you don't want something to drink? Megan asked again as she unclasped a bracelet from around her wrist. I shook my head. Too early in the day for me, I said. It would be too early for me, too, if I hadn't discovered amethyst. She took her bracelet and dipped it into the glass of wine as if it were a tea bag that happened to be made out of silver and crystals. She looked up and smiled at my expression, which I imagine was on a spectrum somewhere between amused and confused. Amethyst detoxifies alcohol so you don't get drunk. In Greek, the word amethyst means not drunken. That actually works, I asked. I don't know, but after a couple of glasses, you tend to stop caring. She used her napkin to dry off the bracelet and then took a sip of wine, smiling contentedly. She set the glass down and settled back in her seat, starting to relax. So everybody seems to know you here, she said with a touch of amazement. The hostess, the waitress, even cooks were waving at you from the kitchen when we walked in. Do you come here a lot? I shrugged. On and off. Not so much anymore, but I spent a lot of time here in my late teens and early twenties. I worked here. Were you a waiter? No, I did. Magic, table to table. You were the house magician? That is adorable, she said, smiling broadly. What sorts of things did you do? All the typical stuff. Some card work, some coin work, cut and restore to rope, make your watch disappear, perfectly timed to cover the duration between when the order was placed and the food arrived. She leaned forward, excited. Do something for me now. What, right now? Please, please, please. I patted my pockets, which may have looked like a show business move, but was actually designed to see what I might have on my person to create a spontaneous performance. I can't believe that I violated the one rule I religiously tell my students, always travel with a pack of cards. I looked around the table to see what might be handy. Well, it's sort of a stupid trick, I said as I grabbed the salt shaker, but it will have to do in a pinch. I slid the salt shaker back and forth smoothly across the top of the table a few times and then deftly covered it with my napkin. Megan watched closely, her eyes following the movement of the covered shaker as I danced it around the tabletop a couple more times. These restaurant tables may seem solid, I said, improvising some patter, but they all have a weak spot a point that isn't nearly as strong as the rest. With little testing and a little practice, you can actually locate that spot. In fact, I think I found it. Right here. With that, I suddenly slammed my hand down hard on the covered salt shaker, flattening the napkin against the table. At that same instant, there was the distinct sound of something hitting the carpet beneath the table. I lifted up the napkin off the tabletop to reveal that the salt shaker was now gone. Megan's hand had flown to her mouth, her eyes wide. Then, almost in unison, we both leaned over and peered under the table. There, sitting on the floor, was the salt shaker. I reached under the table and picked it up. Holy crap! Megan exclaimed, barely squelching a yelp. I love it! Don't tell me how you did that. I don't want to know. It's magic, I said, replacing the salt shaker and putting my napkin back in my lap. So... If your grandmother owned this block, how come I never saw you around here when I was younger? 
We lived in Michigan, she said, taking another sip of wine. Sometimes we'd visit, but we didn't hang around here so much. She had property in St. Paul where we'd go play and stuff, but we didn't hang out in Minneapolis much at all. And now you're in charge of all that property? Well, it's not all that much, really. She sold a few things before she died. Pete's helping me get rid of the rest, with the exception of this block, of course. I wanted to stay here. There's just something special about it. Well, I agree, I said, taking a couple of the tortilla chips from the basket on the table. I've had the chance to travel quite a bit, both as a kid with my uncle and as a working magician myself, but I'm always drawn back to this particular spot. Speaking of your uncle, here's something I've been meaning to ask you. Why does he call you Buster? I shrugged as I munched on the chip. Well, that's a short and not too interesting story. Tell me anyway. We need to talk about something until our food gets here. I don't want to fill up on chips. She pushed the basket of chips away, out of her reach, but well within mine. All right. Well, in addition to being my uncle, Harry is also my godfather. Here's what you need to know about Harry Marks. He's a student of the history of magic. Years ago, there was another magician named Harry that you might have heard of. Harry Houdini? Megan nodded, her eyes sparkling as she listened. Everyone's heard of Harry Houdini. He was a great magician. Actually, he was a so-so magician, but a phenomenal promoter and showman. If you're looking for an amazing magician from that era, look at a guy named Howard Thurston. I realized I was getting off track. Anyway, Harry Houdini's godson was a kid named Joseph Keaton. He was the son of a couple vaudeville performers Houdini had worked with. When the kid was quite small, Houdini nicknamed him Buster. There's several different versions as to why, and the name stuck. Then the kid grew up and became famous himself. Megan thought through the story so far and finally put the pieces together. Buster Keaton, she said. That's right, I said, Buster Keaton. So somehow in Uncle Harry's twisted brain, it made sense for him to nickname me Buster, which he did, and it stuck at least with him. My aunt always called me Eli. And they raised you? Mostly, from about age 10 after my parents died. I looked up to see that the waitress was approaching with our food. And speaking of death, here comes one of the deadliest, hottest tamales you will find this side of Guadalajara. Consider yourself warned. The waitress set our food in front of us, and conversation ceased for a few moments. So, yesterday... Megan began between mouthfuls. We started to talk about divorce. I chewed for a moment before answering. Yes, we did. Did you ever regret getting divorced? Well, to be honest, I didn't really feel like I had a choice. It was over. It was that simple. The divorce was just the paperwork. We continued to eat quietly for a few moments. How about you, I ventured. Are you having second thoughts? She immediately shook her head. I know it's the right thing, she said. I mean, I know in my heart. Plus, I went to two completely different psychics, and they both said that divorce was the right move. Independently, she added. Sounds like you've got it covered. She nodded in agreement. I guess it's just a matter of slogging through it. Is Pete making it hard? No, not at all. He's been really good about it. I mean, he's dragging his feet a bit because I think he's still holding out hope, that's normal, right? I guess so. I mean, if we were married, I'd be very hesitant to let you go. This produced a smile from Megan that bordered on shy. The restaurant was now nearly empty, 
and the waitstaff were cleaning tables and getting things set for dinner. Faintly on the sound system, I could hear what sounded like a Mexican version of Seasons in the Sun, all in Spanish. In case you're wondering, it didn't sound any better in that language either. After we finished lunch, we walked slowly down the sidewalk toward our respective retail establishments. It was cloudy and chilly with a real snap in the air that let you know with no uncertainty that winter, in all its glory, was just around the corner, thank you very much. We stopped in front of Chicago Magic, neither one of us certain what the correct protocol was for ending this, our first quasi-date. Megan looked from me to the items Harry had put on display in our small front window. For Halloween, he had arranged a couple of jack-o'-lanterns, each with a white stuffed bunny popping out of it. In the background were two skeleton cutouts. Wasn't exactly Macy's at Christmas time, but it looked nice. Megan turned to me suddenly. I know what I wanted to ask you, she said a little breathlessly. It's been driving me crazy. She stepped closer to me in classic close-talker mode. I'm all attention, I said. You know down there on the parkway, she said, pointing vaguely over my left shoulder. It wasn't here the last time I came to visit my grandmother, and now it is. And it's the weirdest thing. I waited patiently for her to land on a noun. What are you trying to say? I finally asked. What's the deal with that rabbit? She blurted out at long last. Oh, I said, comprehending. The statue of the rabbit. I nodded along with her. Actually, no one knows for sure. It just showed up one day, out of the blue. I shrugged and looked at her with complete seriousness. She cocked her head to one side and then gave my arm a hard but playful slap. You got me, she said. You completely got me on that one. Then she took me completely by surprise by leaning in and giving me a warm but impulsive kiss right on the lips. She tasted soft and sweet and oh so slightly of chilies. And then, just as quickly, she turned around and headed down the sidewalk toward her store. See you around, Buster, she said without turning back. I stood there watching her go, and I realized that Although I had never had occasion to use the word or even say it out loud in my entire life, I was now, at this very moment, and for the first time, gobsmacked. Completely, utterly gobsmacked. And it felt great. You know, that was the very first time I ever used the word gobsmacked uh, in a book or in real life. And I had to look it up to make sure I was right. Where did it, how did I, you? It's, I think it's British. I know The Ambitious Card was published uh, by a traditional publisher first before I bought back the rights. And I know there was a lot of discussion back and forth with their editor about whether Gobsmacked was hyphenated or not. They clearly landed on not hyphenated because that's how it ended up in the book. I, I didn't participate in that conversation, maybe to the degree that I should have, because I didn't care. I looked at the word, it said Gobsmacked. I was done and ready to move on. Oh, wait, well, wait a minute. Where did you, where did it come from for you? If you, uh, I have no idea, you yeah. know? My whole life is just wandering down the alley of life, picking up debris that people have thrown out. I don't know where I got it. Somebody threw out a gobsmack. They, everything I know that makes me seem smart, if you find out where I got it, you go, well, you're an idiot. It's like, yeah, yeah. Sure, I can recite the last paragraph of uh, James Joyce's Ulysses, but only because yes. I heard I can I heard Ralph Spoilsport do it at the end of a Fireside Theater album. So it, I sound smart until you dig, and you go, oh, all right, he's, he's kind of a fool. <laughs> well, listen... 
if you're a fool, what am I? Please don't answer. Please don't answer. Or let us know. At, hit the contact <laughs> button at elimarksmysteries.com. Anyway, I think we've done enough damage for this episode. I agree. We'll see you uh, folks in the next one when we get to meet uh, the charming and lovely and funny and talented Liberty Larson. Just a delight. And also, uh, we'd love for you to rate and review us on whatever platform you call home. Could be YouTube, I found out today. Uh, That really will help other listeners find us. And that's a good thing for them. And it's a good thing for us, too. It certainly doesn't hurt. And there, I know there for a fact there's a subscribe button on YouTube. And that's one I'd hit just because sometimes I'll throw fun stuff up there like, oh, Jeff Altman doing a card trick. Or I recently put up one of, uh, I don't know if you even saw this, I put it on Facebook as well. Just a little audio soundbite from us recording the Magic Square when you had to do Nathan's impression of <laughs> Harry. And there was a, a discussion of how many layers this was involving. And check that out on YouTube. It's, I didn't uh, swear, did I? No, you didn't. And if you did, I would have cut it out because it's okay. not that kind of podcast. Yeah. Anyway, check out that and all kinds of other fun stuff on uh, behind the page, Eli Marks podcast on YouTube and subscribe there and everywhere else. That's enough for now. Jim, see you next time. Yeah, I'll be here. Thanks for listening, everybody. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham. Produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. Thank you.